our scripture comes from Hebrews 8, verses 7 through 13. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one to his neighbor and each one to his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Hey, uh, I'm just curious. Anyone out there have some old clothes, comfortable things that you like to wear, uh, maybe a little worn, maybe a little tattered, might have some stains on them, a few seams coming out, uh, maybe a few bleach spots here and there. Anyone have some of those like nice? I don't have any of those. Uh, well, I did. There was this really great purple knit short sleeve shirt that I loved. It was all worn in. It was comfortable. And one day I went to go get it in the closet and it was gone. And it had been replaced by an imposter. A new purple knit shirt that was not as comfortable and fit me, didn't, not quite the same way. Uh, I've almost forgiven Amelia at this point. But uh, that's part of our uh, growing in grace together. We have things like that, not just clothes. There, there are things that just, you know, sort of seem natural and comfortable that, uh, like a route that you drive to work, maybe. Anyone have that? Like you, you go the same way so many times that you can just do it on autopilot. And that's really great. It, it saves, you know, mental energy. And uh, except when you don't need to go to work and you start heading that way because you were just on autopilot because it had become a habit, right? It just sort of gotten ingrained. Some of those things are maybe a little more significant. Uh, you know, habits or patterns maybe that we picked up from our families of origin. Uh, what a marriage looks like, how to handle conflict, how you deal with finances, uh, how you spend your money. Um, we get used to familiar ways of doing things, right? And, and it's hard for us to give them up even if they don't fit us anymore, if they don't look right, if they're not as functional, even if there's something better for us, maybe the old way or the old thing has become obsolete and doesn't even work very well, maybe it's become an obstacle to us. Sometimes it can even become harmful, but it just seems second nature to us. Tim Keller shares this helpful observation. Uh, he says, all religions, no matter what, all religions agree generally on two things. One, that behind all of a nature, that there is some ultimate reality that is above and beyond what we can just explain from the physical material world. There's, there's something bigger out there. And secondly, that there's a gap between us 
and that ultimate reality. And, and we need something or someone to bridge that gap for us because we have this sense that we're not there. We're not where we want to be. And religions, of course, differ enormously on the nature of that ultimate reality, whether it's a personal God, whether it's a universal consciousness, whether it's um, something inside of us, and, and religions differ widely on what to do about that gap, whether there's rites or rituals that we're supposed to perform, whether we bridge that gap by moral observances or saying the right prayers or uh, having the right services or sacrifices or having insider knowledge or prayer or meditation, right? But all religions agree that, that there's something bigger than us out there and that we need something to, to bridge the gap for us, to tap into that life. And the reason that that is significant is because deep down, fundamentally, we are all deeply religious beings. We are made for worship. We are made with this religious impulse inside of us. And it's deeply embedded in us. It's the default setting. It's the second nature force. It's the habit that comes out in all kinds of ways, like the comfortable old clothes that we tend to wear, or like the route that we usually take to drive to work, or it's not so much of a problem, for example, you know, when it comes to a personal preference, like what kind of clothes I wear to do yard work or the right way to cook pasta. But that religious default that's deeply embedded in us can really become a problem when it comes to understanding and dealing with those bigger questions of ultimate reality and what do we do about it. Because here's the uniquely crucial thing about Christianity. Jesus Christ has not come to offer us a new or a better or improved religion. He's not come to even give us an ultimate religion that replaces all the other ones. Jesus has come to end religion. He's not come to wash our old clothes and, and give us a nice new purple shirt, which actually was an improvement over the old one. I mean, he actually did me a favor. He's come to get rid of the old one and give us a new one. He didn't come to give us better techniques for living, but an entirely new kind of life. Jesus has come away to come to do away with religion and to get it out of us. And that's what this passage that we're looking at in Hebrews 8 is about. We're continuing our series in the book of Hebrews, and we're in chapter 8 this morning. If you're using the black Bibles in the seat underneath in front of you, that's on page 1192. Or in your scripture journal, that's, excuse me, on page 30. I get choked up when I say scripture journal, sorry. They're just beautiful. They got the faith logo. Here's a brief reminder of some of what we have seen already in Hebrews. Remember back at the beginning, Hebrews, the writer says this about Jesus. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by his own power. Jesus is God. He says that about himself. When you see me, you've seen the Father. Every religion has a teacher that says, I will show you the way to ultimate reality. None of them have a teacher that says, I am ultimate reality. Jesus says, I am the end that all wisdom, all prophets, all teaching is pointing towards. 
but he's also the bridge that closes the gap between us and God, that ultimate reality. That's what Hebrews 7 and 8 and 9 that we're in right now are explaining and pointing out. And Joey did a great job last week pointing out to us, teaching us how Jesus has come to fulfill and finish all priestly activity. Not not just some people, not just some religions, but all of it. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. No more rituals, no more rites to perform, no more specific prayers that we're supposed to offer in a particular way or in a particular place. Every religion says, do this, offer this, pray this, sacrifice this, give this, and that will bridge the gap between you and God. And Jesus says, I am the God who at infinite cost came down and sacrificed myself in order to bridge the gap that you could never do on your own, that religious observances will never, never bridge that gap. I have come to you to do what you cannot do. Jesus has fulfilled all of it. He's the priest and the sacrifice. And the, and the point of this, again, is that Christianity is not a new and improved religion. It is, in a sense, the anti-religion. Uh, 7-Up, when we were growing up, was the uncola. Christianity, we could say, is sort of the unreligion. It, it's the in place of religion. And that can be a problem for us. Because even as people who know and want to follow Jesus, we still have this deeply, deeply embedded religious instinct and response. Religion is fundamentally kind of a a contractual relationship. You do this and God will do this. If you offer the right gifts, God will give you this outcome. If you obey, I will bless you. If you disobey, I, I will punish you. That's a contract. Each of you is agreeing to hold up your end of the bargain. It's a conditional commitment with limited intimacy. Religion says, live like this and God will accept you. And Christianity says, Jesus says, you are already accepted in me. So now here's how to live out of that. And in the second half of Hebrews 8, then we want to see what it means to know God and have that kind of relationship with him and how that challenges and changes that religious impulse in us. That relationship is described in terms of a covenant. God says here, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah, with with my people. So, So what's a covenant? We don't really have a good English synonym for it. We don't even really have very many examples. It's not a contract. It's a combination of intimacy and commitment. And the best illustration we have of this is, is maybe in our marriage vows. Any of you who are married here today, did you pay attention to what you were saying when you got married? Do you know what you signed up for when you got married? I promise to love, honor, cherish, and forsaking all others, be committed to this person for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. When we got married, we signed a blank check on our lives and handed it over to our spouse and said, you can cash this for whatever you need for any amount and it will be good for our entire relationship. No exclusions, no commitments, 
no conditions, no limitations. In, in marriage, you are, you are all in. That's the intent. It doesn't always work out that way, but that's the intent, right? That's a covenant, a relationship that is completely binding and deeply intimate at the same time because without the commitment, without the security, you can't have the intimacy in the relationship. It reflects this biblical understanding of that almost kind of paradox of human nature. If the foundation for your relationship is kind of contractual, like you do your 50%, I'll do my 50%, that's like a business relationship. Whether it's a friendship or a romantic relationship or partnership, you're not going to really have much intimacy in the relationship because neither person wants to give up their independence. They're still saying, I want, my, I want the right to do what I want with myself, and you have to, I'm going to hold you accountable to keep up your end of the bargain. And then there's hardly any intimacy or honesty either because we're constantly consumed with making sure that person is doing what they're supposed to be doing and keeping track of whether I'm getting the, the benefits out of the relationship that I signed up for. And does it balance with what I think I'm putting into it? And of course, I always think I'm doing a better job than the other person, right? Which is why that's so destructive in relationships. What if instead two people said, I'm willing to put aside my interests to serve you first, to love you first, to prioritize what's important to you, to be kind and caring and good to you, whether you're giving that back to me or not. That sounds kind of scary, like, I'm not sure I want to give that. It sounds great. I'd love to get that, right? But it's only to the degree that we're willing to give up our independence and that we're willing to be honest that we can have the freedom and security of a covenant, of, of, a, of a committed relationship like that. That's kind of the irony, the paradox. That's a covenant relationship. So what is this new covenant that God's talking about? Well, God mentions an old covenant that he had that he's going to update, that he's going to expand. It, it had this binding, intimate relationship in it with Israel, but it also had a lot of the marks of religion too. See there in verse 9, they, my people, they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, or I turned my face away from them. And that sounds a lot like religion, doesn't it? You keep up your end of the bargain, and I'll keep up my end. And if you fail, we're done, and you're out. In religion, you have a conditional, contractual relationship. I will be the good moral person I will be as long as God is providing the benefits that I want out of it. That's transactional. And, and God says, those people are disobeying. They're not remaining faithful to my covenant, so I showed no concern for them. I turned away from them. And, and it's a little more complicated than that because they were still already God's people when he called them and gave them this law that they failed to uphold. So the whole relationship of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is, is probably more complex than we can get into here. Their obedience was supposed to reflect the love and the grace of God that they'd already received, but because they forfeited that, because they turned away in faithlessness, they surrendered their covenant promises, the land and the blessing and all that. And so God sends them into exile, remember. But he's not forgotten or rejected them forever because the Bible also says God's purposes endure. Now, verse 9 
again, reflects some of this religious element. Parts of this old covenant sound like a religious transaction where we're supposed to perform in order to get the goodies. But God says, now I'm going to make a new covenant with my people. It's not going to be like the one that I made with their forefathers when I brought them out of Egypt because they didn't continue. I remember having a conversation with a woman one time. We were talking about Christianity, Christian faith, and she said something along the lines of, you know what I, I really dislike about Christianity? It seems like everybody says, you know, you need to submit to God. You need to submit to God. Like, I have to adjust to God. Why do I always have to be the one to adjust to God? When is God going to adjust to me? And I think that, you know, whenever she said that to a Christian, she probably heard something like, well, duh, he's God. So you're supposed to submit to him because he's the creator and we're creatures. God doesn't adjust to us, we adjust to him. But that's not really true, is it? It's partially true. I know I was tempted to give that answer to her. I probably did at some point. God found fault with the people in verse 9 because they were faithless. They did not continue. So what did God do for people who did not remain faithful to him? He sent his son to faithless people. And we have all these living parables like Hosea, whom God tells to, to go marry an adulterous woman. And it's a picture of how Israel is adulterous and turning away from God. But I want you to love this woman and, and keep pursuing her just like I keep pursuing my faithless people. God found fault with the people and God sends his son. He cosmically infinitely on the cross, adjusted himself to our sinfulness. He said, I'm going to be faithful to you, even if you're faithless to me. And you know what it cost him? On the cross, the son was abandoned and cursed by the father. He took the covenant-breaking curse on himself that we deserve even though he was perfectly faithful, so that we could get the covenant blessing, so that Jesus would be able to say on the authority of the Father in verse 12, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. No more. Jesus Christ has bound himself to us by his love and faithfulness. And if you're a religious person, maybe that is not all that attractive or it doesn't even make that much sense because you say, I, I'm going to church, I'm trying to be good, I'm doing all these things, I give and I serve, and my life is not going great. And here's there's this neighbor of mine or this brother or whatever, they're not even trying to follow God and look at how easy they have it. Why, why are those people getting a better deal than I am? God, what have you done for me? lately? Have we looked at the cross? What has God done for us? Is, is God shortchanging us somehow? See, if we ever, th when we think like that, it's because religion is still so deeply rooted in us 
that we think my, my service, my giving, my faithfulness earns something and I deserve something from God. You're saying I'm doing this and I'm doing this and this is what God owes me. See, a person who's, who's been changed by the gospel, as God is continually working this new life in us, we're going to grow to be much slower to, to think about our relationship with God in that way. Because God has unconditionally loved me and, and given me all the blessings of, of his life and his joy and his hope in his son. And it's not based on a religious transaction. So what, is this, what does this mean? What do we do with this? I want to spend a little bit of time, the rest of the time, talking about how we might live this out and how it's ex- expressed here in this passage. Sort of some marks, some signposts of new covenant relationships. I think there's three of them here in this passage. God says, I will write, their, write my laws on their minds and on their hearts. They will know me, God says. Where was the law written? Under the old covenant. It was those big stone tablets, right? Moses brings them down from the mountain. There's these big tablets. You could, you could see them in front of you. It was like, you know, every time if you left out of the worship center, there's just like a big wall that says, here's the things you're supposed to do and not do. Don't do these bad things or these other bad things will happen to you. God's laws were clear, but it was external to the people. And that's the problem because laws don't change us. I mean, laws are good. They can guide us. They can restrain us, but they cannot renew us. Our country is what, like 240-something years old? How many laws do you think have been written in 240-something years? I mean, they stack up who knows how high. How many of them have actually changed someone's heart? And said, wow, now that I know that law exists, I really want to be that kind of a person. Laws are external. They can't change us. And so so God says, I'm going to change you from the inside out. I'm I'm going to put my law in you. And my spirit's going to live in you to help you want to and be able to do what you can't do on on your own. And so the, the first one here is, Intimacy in the place of formalism. See, that religious impulse that wells up within us, it's a kind of a formalism. It's about rituals and doing the right things, saying the right things, and providing the right sacrifices. Because in religion, there's no intimacy with God. We're basically all NFL free agents with one-year renewable contracts. And I'm just going to sign up for whatever I can negotiate with God this year. And if he holds up his end of the bargain, I'll hold up my end of the bargain. But there's no intimacy, there's no connection there. God does his part, I do mine. Maybe you get inspired sometimes. Maybe you go out and do something extra. Maybe you get convicted sometimes. But let me ask you, do you really know God? Not just know about him, not just know what his word says. Do you know him? Because that's what he says will happen in verse 11. They will not teach one another saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. My people will know me, not just know my laws. Have you ever experienced God's love as just a response in your heart to the goodness of what he has given you in his son? 
Do you ever just read through his word and, and there's some passage that jumps out at you and, and you just, you're so thankful for it because it's so beautiful and it's so true and it's so real and sometimes maybe even it's, it's painful or convicting, but, but it's God speaking to you personally because you have a relationship with him and not just a religion. That God's word consoles you, it gives you hope, it, it guides you, it directs you, it changes you, it shapes the way that you start to react to your life and to the world around you. Have you ever had a sense that, you know, God is saying, will you listen to me? You know, a, a God that is not big enough to ever challenge you is not a God that's worthy of worship. Because if your God never really gets in your face and challenges you and, and you know, sort of shakes you around a little lovingly, it, you're probably not worshiping God. It's probably my own idea of God because I always like my ideas, right? They always seem good at the time. But I need a God that's bigger than me, who cares about me enough to challenge me and, and push me. Do you have the sense that you're actually in a relationship with God? Because that's his intent, that, that they would know me. Or is God just someone that you believe in at some intellectual level you say your prayers to occasionally? But it's not really a relationship that shapes you or changes you or animates your heart or, or makes you joyful. That's religion. That's religious duty. Josiah was uh, one of the kings of God's old covenant people. A godly man, loved the Lord, followed him, but his son sadly went in a different direction. And in Jeremiah 22, God speaks to this faithless son of Josiah, and he says, Didn't your father do justice and righteousness? He judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Is this not what it means to know me, says the Lord? But you have eyes and heart for dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood, for practicing oppression and violence. Did you hear what God is saying there? To know me is to do what I care about, is to have my heart for the world and for it to be lived out in you. To seek justice, to plead the cause of the weak and the vulnerable, to, to know God is to love what God loves and to advance what God cares about in this world. Intimacy is a mark of being in a new covenant relationship with God because you know, you know that you are secure in Christ and you love that God that has saved you. And then notice what else it says. They will know me from the least of them to the greatest. There's a unity here that, that replaces a pride and a superiority that comes with religion. Because if you think about it, when you would go to the tabernacle, when you go to the temple, if you know any of the Old Testament history of God's people, it, it was all broken up into different sections that were ranked based on kind of where you were in the pecking order. There was the holy place where the priest could go, and there was the outer court where most people could go. But then there was the farther back court where the Gentiles had to stay. And that there was a section for the men and there was a section for the women. And, and if you had a disease or you were richly unclean, you couldn't even come into the temple precinct at all. And, and on and on and on. You know what's really cool um, in, in reading through, for example, like the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. Have you ever noticed who all is in there? There's men and women. There's Jews. There's Gentiles. 
there's moral exemplars, there's prostitute, because that's what God's people are. It's not about having a religious pedigree or, or some great list of accomplishments that I've done for God that puts me above other people. Because see, that's what religion is. It's, it's saying, I'm going to bridge the gap between me and God, and I'm going to earn something, I'm going to have something that I can boast about and find my identity in. Maybe you find your identity, for example, in being a hardworking person, being really efficient, and, and then it becomes easy for us to look down on people that you think are lazy or incompetent. Or maybe you get a lot of identity and self-worth and how well you manage money, and, th- and then it becomes easy to scorn and despise people that you think are wasteful. Or maybe you get a lot of identity out of being tolerant and open-minded and, and accepting, and then you become self-righteous and condemning of people that you think are intolerant, which is, of course, kind of an irony if you think about it, right? Religion always makes us feel superior to someone else. That's what it is. It's this impulse that says, I'm going to do something, and then that becomes something that I can boast about against other people, and then that leads almost always to exclusion, and then ultimately often to oppression. But if we know that we are saved from the least to the greatest by God's totally undeserved grace, it destroys that religious exclusionary impulse. There's no difference. Whether you're a good religious person, whether you're kind of moral, whether you're an addict, whether you're a thief, whether you're a respectable pillar of society, it doesn't matter because we're all equally lost. And if we're in Christ, we're all equally welcomed and affirmed and accepted by God's undeserved grace. In in that sense, the gospel is totally egalitarian. We're we're all desperately broken and needy. So what do I have to boast about? It kills. The gospel is meant to kill that kind of religious impulse to look down on other people and condemn them because they're not measuring up to the standard that I think I'm meeting. What do you do when your sin is exposed? If you're like me or like most people, one natural response Several natural responses is we tend to deny, deflect, or redirect it somewhere else. I didn't do it. And if I did do it, it wasn't that bad. Well, anyway, it wasn't as bad as what that other person did. That's a religious response. See, I can't be honest about what I've actually done because to do that is to take something away from me. It lowers me in my estimation as a good, respectable, religious person. But in that new covenant with God, we have an unconditional security. It's safe to be fully known. We can be honest. It changes how we see ourselves and how we see other people. Covenant relationships bring real unity across all those barriers and dividing lines because there's there's no longer any class of privileged people that are higher up on the ladder or closer to God than anyone else because of what they're doing. We're all equally children of God. Is Is your relationship with God building that kind of unity in how you look at people and how you relate to them? And then thirdly, quickly, community replaces individualism. Look again in verse 10. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. 
And at the end of verse 10, I will be their God, and they shall be my persons. Now, he doesn't say persons, does he? He says, they will be my people. That's a collective noun for a group of people. God does not say, you will be the individual persons that I will select uniquely and individually to have a personal relationship with. He's saying, when you come to experience my relationship through this new covenant, it automatically brings you into a new community, a new humanity, the people that I am recreating. Because Jesus did not just come to save people to go to heaven someday when we die. He's come to redeem what has been broken and ultimately restore a new heavens and a new earth. And we're the forerunners of that. We are the new people that God's future is heading towards in the world that he is going to recreate when Jesus comes again in glory. And what that means is that, that we are people who are heading towards a future where there is no more injustice, no more oppression, no more racism, no more greed, no more taking advantage of people, no more lying, no more deceit, no more sickness, no more death, no more sorrow, no more evil. It's all gone one day. And, and to be saved is to be part of this new humanity where radical grace has changed us and we now start, we get a foretaste of what that will be like and then we become the kind of people that express that to each other and out into the world. Because here's what that community part means. It, you realize that God came to you and said, I'm going to be, I'm committing myself through the blood of my son to be faithful to you even when you are unfaithful to me. What would that mean for our relationships with other people in the body of Christ? It would mean we're not going to expect them to be perfectly faithful and perfectly righteous and perfectly kind and patient all the time right? We're going to continue like God has been with us. We're going to continue to be kind and faithful and patient and loving, and we're going to hang in there with them because the church is a flawed place, and we're flawed people, and we don't come to the church like it's a religious transaction marketplace, and, and we say, you know, I'm going to come to this church, and I'm going to be a part of it as long as it's meeting my needs and doing what I want it to do for me, and as soon as I'm putting more in than I'm getting out, then I'm done. That's a religious response. The gospel says God has given us fully and freely of his son. And, and that changes how we look at our brothers and sisters to say, I, I'm not just going to be friends with them as long as they're meeting my needs. The church is imperfect. I'm imperfect, but I'm going to be true to them. I want to be committed. I want to be in this with one another, even when they're not being what they ought to be, because that's me too. We live in the already in the not yet of this, right? I mean, as we were reading through this, you could probably hear and, and perceive we get some of this now, right? But we don't have it all. We've gotten the down payment. We're like God's plan release 0.8. And, and the, full, the full release rollout is coming when Jesus returns. We experience the reality of these things, but not the fullness of them. And, and what that means is it gives us 
hope and confidence in God's faithfulness because he has inaugurated this covenant and we are experiencing that means he's going to complete it. And that gives us hope and confidence in the struggle. It makes us long for home. And it reminds us that this world is not our home. And the good things of this world are good things, but they're, they're temporary things. And they're only meant to point us to the ultimate reality and the ultimate fulfillment. This is not the end of the story because we're not home yet. And, and it helps us trust that God will complete the work that he's begun in us because he has begun it. We do have a new relationship with God. And God invites us now to come out in this covenant to come out and, and to draw out of us those old religious patterns and habits and ways of being and responding into a new living relationship with him, one of intimacy and community and connection and, and unity where he says, I will be your God and you will be my people now and forever. Let's hope, let's trust, let's rejoice in that promise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the awesome promise and blessing that we have in Christ of a new relationship with you. Thank you that we even now have the down payment, the foretaste of it. Father, help us to see as your people how easily we default to religious responses to you, to one another, to the world around us. And help us to grow in grace as your people, as new covenant people, that we would experience and spread out more of your goodness, your faithfulness, your undeserved kindness that we have already received. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.